angry mob from your, from your city. Imagine in that church that despite all this violence, you and your church keep meeting, keep loving one another, keep sharing the love and truth of Christ with others, with extended family members and neighbors and other villagers. And even with such a high price to pay, there are people who are coming to Christ in your church, renouncing the the alternative false worldview that's around them and, and putting their faith in Christ. Imagine what life would be like for you. Just imagine yourself in that church and those things going on. Now, by the way, as you know, this is a a true scenario for many believers. Now imagine that a guest speaker is coming to town, to your village. He's going to speak at your church, um, and he's going to talk about something over the next few Sundays. What would you want to hear? What would you want that guest speaker to teach you? What would be some of the truths that you'd want him to focus on? What parts of Scripture would you want him to highlight? How can that guest speaker coming to your church in those circumstances best help you? Should he preach that if you just have enough faith, God will respond to your faith and and He'll give you power and victory over all your enemies and you'll prosper spiritually and relationally and financially as well? Should he bring a message that if you just have enough faith, God will respond? He'll have to because that's how God works the equation, and then he'll bring all this blessing and all that hardship that you've had will change. Should he bring a truth like that? Or maybe he should preach something kind of on the other end of the spectrum that, that you know, the reality is that this world is under the control of the devil. The church will struggle. Uh, there'll be a small remnant that will somehow survive for a little while, but most people will apostatize. But if you hang on to the end, you'll get taken up to heaven before it gets really, really bad. Is that the message that would help you? What should the visiting pastor teach? Well, I think think you know the answer. He should teach the truths that we're learning in Revelation. He should teach the truths that are intended for situations just like this scenario. To learn from the book of Revelation that, that yes, we live in a world where Satan is still active, but he's limited. He's limited so that the Gospel can go forward. That the Gospel can go forward to the nations. Teaching from Revelation that that even though we may be small at the time and struggle, there is and will be a perfect and countless number of those whom God will save. And that when the work is complete, Christ Himself will return and He will punish those who rebel against Him and reward eternally those who have been faithful. From this book, we would learn and we are learning that Jesus wins. And so stay close to Him. Hang on. It will all be worth it. I think that's the truth that you would need in that church. And that is the truth. Those truths are what we're learning as we go through Revelation. These main points that I've mentioned are are really what this book is about. And it's meant to function in the way that I've created with this scenario. It's meant to strengthen churches. It's meant to give us hope. It's meant to call us to to hang on to Jesus, to walk with Him, the faithful one, so that we ourselves will be faithful. It will all be worth it. And we've been going through chapter 20 and and learning from this chapter that it's no different from all the others. It's it's another uh, vision cycle here that, that looks at 
what God is doing from a slightly different angle to emphasize the same points. Last week we looked at verses 1-3 to and we learned that Satan is bound. That there's a binding that's gone on of Satan so the Gospel can go forward. This week we're going to continue on looking at verses 4-10 through and learn that the saints are victorious as they await the vanquishing of Satan. So that's the key truth here. And the intent here is encouragement. To be encouraged because the saints are victorious and Satan will be vanquished. Well, let's pray and then we'll look at God's Word and learn these truths. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that we're not left to kind of try to ground ourselves in misdirected doctrines. But we have Your Word. And Your Word is sufficient to equip us and to encourage us and to help us. And I pray, Lord, as we look at Your Word this morning, I pray You would do just that. I pray, Lord God, that You would strengthen us and encourage us and equip us to to be faithful witnesses with Jesus, the faithful witness, in all the work that You have. I pray, Lord, You minister to each and every one here. Lord, You know where each one is. And and so I pray You you would use me as I seek to teach and proclaim Your Word that, that each one here would encounter You. So thank You, Lord. Thank You that this is uh, in line with who You are and what You want to do. So we ask it and, and look forward to what You'll do. In Christ's name, Amen. Let me read chapter 20, verses 1-10. through 10. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the Word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented, by, tormented day and night forever and ever. God's Word from Revelation 21-10. through 10. We're going to focus on verses 4-10 through 10 this week. We've been going through this key chapter, and uh, we've slowed down quite a bit. If you've been with us over the past two messages, we've slowed down and got into a lot of detail uh, because th- these chapters are uh, controversial in many ways. Uh, they carry a lot of weight in, as far as how people understand uh, what the Lord will do at the end of all things, what He's doing in the church age, what He'll do at the end of time. And, 
And so we took a lot of time. And, and so those messages are available uh, via manuscripts. Uh, and I will uh, send them out again as well. When we're done, I'll actually put a whole manuscript for the whole chapter, actually verses 1 through 10 together and send them to you guys just so you have time to chew on it. Thanks for hanging in there, by the way. Uh, this has been challenging work. Um, the way that God has designed the Scriptures, the things that are most essential are perfectly clear. Um, thank God for that. There are some things that are not as essential, but are still important, because if it's in the Word, it's important, but they're a little more difficult to work through. Well, Revelation 20 is one of those chapters, but I think the hard work of, of trying to understand, looking at all of Scripture, doing what we've been doing, I think it pays off. Uh, so, so again, thanks for hanging in there. We've been going through the, the chapter, and, and what I've taught, what I believe Revelation teaches, is, is that this chapter is a recap. Uh, it's, a, it's another cycle of vision, looking at the same sorts of things that have been uh, examined through visions or, or revealed through visions throughout this whole book. So it's another uh, vision cycle, so it overlaps other things. It has characteristics of other vision cycles. It's very uh, parallel to chapter uh, 19, as well as chapter 16 and elsewhere. And, and it's a picture, uh, like really all of Revelation, of what life is like between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. It describes the return and what will happen with that, uh, the, the last battle, final judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth. And, but it also describes what's going on in the meantime. So this chapter 20 is uh, highlighting that. And so I know that idea, those ideas might be really new for you if you haven't been here throughout the series. Uh, just hang in there. And uh, let me give you a manuscript from those. So if you want to take a look at the background, I just can't go back over all that background uh, in 40 minutes. <laughs> uh, but so we're just going to kind of move on from that, that understanding that this is a recap. It's talking about what life is like in the church age. And this, in particular, these verses are teaching us that the dead saints are victoriously alive with Christ right now. And they await the final vanquishing of Satan. So... First, I want to talk about the saints who reign with Christ. We see it in verse 4. John sees thrones. He looks and he sees thrones. He, he uh, sees these thrones. Actually, the word throne is used 47 times in Revelation. 47 times the word throne is used in this book. It's a book about thrones. And most of those uses are about the thrones in heaven. 44 of the 47 are about the thrones in heaven. And so, what do you think God's getting at? Guys, you're struggling in your churches. Remember, I am on my throne. I rule and reign. And what this section is teaching us, not only is God on His throne, but His victorious saints, His saints who have died, now are with Him on those thrones, reigning with Him. And that's how this vision is introduced. He sees these thrones. He sees those who are seated on the throne given authority to judge. So the saints, along with the heavenly hosts, are given authority to judge the nations, so they're on the thrones and he sees the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God. So once again, speaking of the faithful saints who, who have been faithful, they've held on to Jesus, and they have even given up their lives for that. Now, we covered this somewhat earlier in the book. These martyrs are, are, are actually representing the entire church. So this is a picture for the entire church. So the idea here is that these martyrs are reigning with Christ, but really all saints who are faithful, all those who hold on to Jesus and are faithful throughout their lives, are there reigning with Christ as well. That's what we're being taught here. 
So this idea of thrones is important in that to understand the reign, the reign of God, but also the reign of the saints. We see it elsewhere in Scripture. Always good to look at the rest of Scripture to understand what, what we're reading where we are. So Daniel chapter 7. It it's a, uh, mentions Jesus and His reign. And it says there, just uh, chapter 7, verse 9, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took His seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of His head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Very similar to Revelation. So the picture of Jesus is, is very similar to what we've seen in Revelation. And He takes His seat on His throne, but notice in verse 9 at the beginning, it says, as I looked, thrones, plural, were placed. Interesting. So God's plan from the beginning was that there'd be thrones in heaven. There'd be certainly God on His throne, but His people and, the, and His heavenly hosts would reign with Him. In heaven. We, we see more context as we look through Revelation. Earlier on, the promises that Jesus gives to His people are related to this idea of reigning. So when He's addressing the particular churches and He wants to encourage them, a promise He gives is, guys, as you hold on, as you are faithful, amidst this difficulty, you will be rewarded with a crown and with a throne. So chapter 2, verses 10-11, through He says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Ten days would be symbolic, so a season of tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So they're going to be rewarded as they're faithful through this tribulation. They might lose their lives, but they will be rewarded with a crown, a crown of life. So they will be reigning and living with the Lord. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Again, very similar to what we're reading. In chapter 3, verse 21, he says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. So you'll be sitting with him on these thrones, reigning with him as you conquer, as you hold on, as you are faithful. We see other related passages in chapter 6 as well. <clears throat> it says there, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the, altar of the, uh, under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So chapter 6, much earlier, a very parallel account, a parallel vision. So he sees souls again. He sees, he sees these souls. He doesn't see embodied souls. He just sees souls. They're under the altar. They, they've been slain for their faith and they're crying out for God to resolve what's happened. And I think that's right in parallel with chapter 20. Also related to uh, chapter 14 and 13. So just other verses connected so you get the idea. It says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So all these verses related to chapter 20 all aimed at encouraging believers who are in tough situations, who are facing trials and facing temptations to bolster their faith that they would be faithful and they would hang on 
promising them a reward. The reward of being alive with the Lord and victorious reigning with Him. That's the promise. So notice, if we were to step outside the controversy of chapter 20 on the millennium, and just for a minute kind of put that to the side, what's being promised in all these other verses? The same sort of stuff, there's no mention of millennium, and and the same sort of stuff, they are promised, what I think is implied is an immediate reward. If you're faithful in your church amidst these trials and, and these temptations, I will give you a crown. You will live with Me. You will reign with Me. He's not saying you're, you're going to you know, have to wait a while and then sometime later there will be this special thousand years. He's not saying that. And, and, and it's, I know he's, you cannot argue from science, but there's nothing like that. It's, it's the implication is, guys, hang on and you will receive this. A crown. You'll be with Me. You'll live. You'll reign with Me. And that's really in line with the thrust of this book. It's meant to be a real encouragement to churches facing trials and temptations in the world as they're called to be faithful in their mission. They're called to be faithful in reflecting Christ and making Him known. And so these these souls are there and John sees them reigning with Christ. They are there on the thrones. They are alive. They They come to life and they reign for a thousand years. So in chapter 20, it uses this word thousand years multiple times. Nowhere else in Revelation and and rarely else in Scripture. Uh, And so we understand these thousand years to represent the church age. Because that would be in in line with what we see with these other verses and as I've tried to demonstrate with the whole of Scripture. That this is during the church age. And this is a promise to the saints that guys, those who are faithful and die are going to immediately go to be with the Lord. They're going to be alive with Him. And they're going to reign with Him until the work is done and Satan is vanquished and the final judgment and the new earth comes. That's the picture here uh, for, for these souls and for the church for us to understand that they come to life. Now, some people wrestle with this and, and faithful, uh, sincere uh, scholars and brothers and sisters, they, they would look at this and say, well, wait a second. They, they, it says that they come alive and it calls it the first resurrection. So that's got to be the resurrection. That's got to be later after Jesus has come back. When He's come back, it's got to be, it's got to be the millennium. This thousand year earthly reign where Christ is on earth reigning over resurrected and unresurrected, regenerate and unregenerate people and, and unrenewed earth. Um, that's got to be when that happens. And that might be an answer, but I think there's a better answer. And so we can look at Scripture. Um, and so they would, they would say, our, our friends would say, you know, that this has to be the resurrection. And then they would say, it's speaking of the resurrection of believers. So the, the souls coming alive are believers who, who, in their understanding, will be resurrected after Christ's return and then reign with him on the earth for those, that special 1,000 years uh, interim period. That's what's going on. And then they, they say there's a second resurrection of those who aren't believers. Those who have continued in their rebellion. That will happen later. And so they create a separation in the two resurrections. Um, and what I would say uh, is, is I, uh, a, a couple of things. <laughs> um, I think that I think looking at all of Scripture, this is speaking of before Christ returns. Um, also, I think Scripture is pretty clear that there's one bodily resurrection. There's not two. There's not the 
One that happens, and a thousand years later, another one. There's one that happens at the same time. We can just turn to chapter 20 later on and see that. There's evidence there. So uh, you can turn to chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. I think we have this to project. It's speaking of final judgment here. So, so in the storyline, Satan gets bound. The gospel goes forward to the nations. During that time, the saints are reigning in heaven. They're waiting the final vanquish of Satan. That happens. Jesus comes back. Uh, and uh, Satan is vanquished. And then judgment occurs. And then uh, according to, uh, according to your, your life, basically, your works that testify to your faith, you're either, either in heaven forever or you're banished to the lake of fire. Uh, that's what's going on. So, there's a, so just look with me in chapter 20 and you'll see this, this final resurrection. It says in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. So the dead, just generally, great and small, all types of people that have been previously physically dead, now are standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So in that context, it appears that there are those who, whose names are written in the book of life. They've put their faith in Jesus. They've fled to Jesus in His mercy. Wonderful, the wonderful good news that, that, that Rick and Julie and Leslie are going to share in India is that um, there's a Savior who's come to rescue us. The reality is that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all exchanged the glory of God. We've all rebelled against Him and said, I'd rather do it my way, on my terms. And that's what sin is at the core. And that sin makes itself known in all sorts of ways from self-righteousness that looks really good, but at the core is not, to just blatant, terrible things. The justice of God demands that He punish us. That He exile us from His presence. And if we continue in that, we'll live forever outside His presence in eternal misery. That's what's this is talking about. But the good news is Christ has come to rescue us. And His desire is that all should be saved. That all would repent. And so the good news, when we hear this truth that Christ died on the cross, shed His blood, took the penalty on Himself, paid it in full, and, and paid it so effectively and completely that he, he was raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And all those who have run to Him in His mercy are forgiven and are in the book of life. And so at final judgment, the books will be opened. This one put their faith in Christ. And we, and we affirm that by looking at their lives and the choices they made. or The fruit of their faith is shown in their lives. This one didn't. That's what's going on in chapter 20. It's the final judgment. But all have been resurrected at that point. There's, there's one resurrection going on. All the dead there. It's not one and then a thousand years later another. You can see it elsewhere in Scripture. Now, we've gone through these verses before. You can look back in the manuscript. So there's like 20 other verses we could look at. We're not going to look at all those. Just John chapter 5. One other parallel verse. This is Jesus speaking about the final resurrection. Listen to what He says. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. So an hour. A, a defined, relatively short amount of time. Hour doesn't necessarily mean 60 minutes, but it's a, it's a, it's a in Scripture, used for a, a small uh, 
distinct point in time. For an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear His voice. When will they hear His voice? Upon His return. They will hear His voice. There will be a, a cry, a trumpet call. All who are in their tombs, all the dead, all the dead will hear His voice at the same time. And come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The same time. The same resurrection. So, these souls who come to life and are called the first resurrection, it must be something a little different. That It's not the final bodily resurrection. It's another type of coming to life. So do we find that idea anywhere else in Scripture? Again, we could look various places, but let's just go to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 20. He's having a discussion with the Sadducees. They are a religious political party. They did not believe in life after death. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. There were all the other books they said, are, that's not God's Word. And, and they didn't believe in life after death. And they come up with this ridiculous scenario to try to trap Jesus. Uh, it's always great to read when people try to trap Jesus and watch how Jesus responds. It's just brilliant. Um, and so what he does here in chapter 20, verses 37 to 38, is he actually uses the first five books of the Bible. He's on their own territory. He says, okay, you won't give me any of the other books? That's all right. I only need, actually, I only need one little part of those five. And so he refers to how God addresses Himself to Moses. So, verse 37, But the dead are raised, Jesus says. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where He calls the Lord the God of, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So Jesus points back to that story where, where God says, I am the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Jesus is using this to prove that God, the dead are raised. It's interesting to note that He's using the term raised. And He speaks of God saying, I am, you know, I am present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Jesus says, now He is not God of the dead, but of the living. So when Moses talks to Him, God says, I am right now the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, they're with Me right now alive. That's what Jesus is saying. That He's not the God of the dead. He's not saying, yeah, but you know those guys lived a long time ago. Yeah, I, I was their God back then. But not now. They're, they're, they're dead and gone. No, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jesus is proving to the Sadducees that there's life after death. But notice that He mixes the dead are raised with the fact that they're alive right now with God. But we know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not alive physically, right? They haven't been raised from the dead yet. They are going to be raised with us at the final, the final uh, turn, at the final judgment. And so notice that Jesus is saying that they are alive, but they're not alive physically. They're alive spiritually. They are souls with God reigning with Him. That's what's going on here. And so there is this idea of being alive and experiencing a coming to life, a resurrection, in a as far as your souls in the presence of God. And then there's a distinct physical resurrection at the end of all things. This is what theologians call the intermediate state. Uh, intermediate because it's between your, your two experiences of physical life. So right now, we all are alive physically, right? Everybody? Are you alive physically right now? I hope so. Um, hopefully making you more alive as you listen to God's Word. Uh, we're all alive and, and our souls are alive. We're here. But one day soon, for all of us, we will put off these bodies. And our bodies will no longer be alive. But if you're in Jesus, your soul will continue to live. You will live with the Lord. 
when you put your faith in Jesus, you, uh, John says, in Gospel of John, you have eternal life. Eternal life is not waiting for you later. It's the moment you believe you have it. You're alive at that point. You receive new life in the Holy Spirit. You're alive forevermore at that moment. So, if you put your faith in Jesus, you've turned to Him, you've turned from your sin to Him to trust Him, you are alive forevermore. You have eternal life. And when your body dies, yes, your body will die, for these bodies are part of the old man. They will die and be put off. You will continue to live. And you will be with Him forever. Now, this is taught elsewhere in Scripture. Just two verses quickly where the Apostle Paul speaks of it. And he's talking first, uh, Philippians chapter 1, he's talking to his friends in Philippi. And he's in jail. And he's facing possible death. And so he's reflecting on this, whether he wants to die or not. And so he says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your own account. So he desires to go with Jesus, but it's going to be his soul, right? Instead, he says, well, for now, because I'm helpful to you guys, I'm staying here in the flesh. So there's life awaiting him, immediate in the presence of God. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see something similar. He says, so we are always of good courage, Paul speaking of his team. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So, to be away from the body, this body, is to be with the Lord. There's no other thing for the believer. There's no other place. To be away from the body is to be with the Lord. That's what's being taught in Revelation 20. This is the truth. This is the encouragement that's intended for the believer in Revelation 20. That guys... If you belong to Jesus and therefore are faithful because He's holding on to you, you're holding on to Him is because He holds on to you. But nevertheless, you must choose to hold on to Him. God never circumvents your choices. So Revelation is saying, hold on. And if you do, upon your death, you will be with Him. You will continue to live forever. You will not only be with Him, but you will have life and you will reign with Him. Right away. This is the the point here in Revelation 20. It's meant to be an encouragement. There is no real death for the people of God. But you will live eternally. That's what what we're seeing here. That's the intent here. There's actually an intent behind it that, that I want us to grasp. Because this isn't just given to inform us. This is given to transform us. This is given to change us. And how we live our lives now. Amidst the trials and temptations of life. It's made to give us a different perspective. So maybe an illustration would help. If you could have a superpower, you know, like a comic book hero superpower, what would you choose? Would you have super strength like Superman? Would you want you know, the ability to jump over buildings to fly to stop bullets? Would you want to be like Superman? Would that be your superpower, super strength? Or maybe it would be like Doctor Strange, you know, mystical powers to transcend dimensions and examine all knowledge and possibilities to be like him. Or maybe you'd want to be one of those gadget superheroes, you know, you've got a gadget or technology for everything, like Iron Man or Batman, right? 
Batman, all, at least the old Batman, always had something in his belt, right, to take care of things. Is that the superpower you want? I wouldn't choose any of those. Here's my superpower. Here's what I would choose. I would want the superpower, kind of like Wolverine, if you know Wolverine. Wolverine can heal. If you hurt Wolverine, he can heal. He has limits, though, in how much he can heal. But I'd want something better than Wolverine. I'd want the ability to heal myself, uh, to basically come back to life no matter what happened to me. So they could drop an atom bomb on me and blow me to pieces. Actually, if it's an atom bomb, it's going to blow me to energy pieces all throughout the universe. All right? And, and like right after I got blown up, pop, boop, I'm back. Right? Or, or whatever they might do to me. Um, I might lose a million battles. I might be killed a million times. But every time, pop, I'm back. That's the superpower I want. I want that ability to come back to life in an instant, no matter what would ever happen to me. I think you know where I'm going. Brothers and sisters, you have this superpower in Jesus. You will never die. No matter what happens to you, you will never die. You belong to the Lord. You are alive forevermore. And if you should die physically, you will be alive in His presence as a soul before Him in glory reigning with Him until He finishes all things. You cannot die. Pop! You'll be there alive the next instant. That is good news. And that's supposed to change our lives. So, take courage. Right? Take courage. Don't be afraid. What should you fear? If that's true, what what is there to fear? Why live life worrying about what might happen to you? Why worry about dying or sickness or or loss? What are the things that you're afraid of that are shaping your life in a way that God wants to change? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of sickness, death? Are you afraid of failure? Are you afraid of losing your fortune? Are you afraid to go on a mission trip to India? Oh, who knows what could happen? Revelation 20 in the Bible gives us amazing truth to change how we live. And that's God's intention in Revelation 20 for these beleaguered believers in these churches that were persecuted that they might be strengthened, that they might not be afraid, that they might continue to be faithful. The saints are victorious. Brothers and sisters, if you put your faith in Christ, you are a saint You have been set apart. You belong to Him. And you're alive forevermore. So be not afraid. Finally, and much more quickly, Satan is vanquished. He's vanquished here. After the thousand years, the Gospel has gone to the nations. The saints in heaven are reigning with Christ, awaiting the fullness of all things. God's been at work on the earth and there's ups and downs. There's trials. There's tribulations. There's seasons of prosperity and in different ways, but there's always a gospel prosperity that continues. And then at the end, he's released. And in line with all the other visions, he, he, in his being released, in this particular viewpoint, it's about Satan's activities in terms of the nations and, and the, the fullness of what God's doing. So he's released at the end and he goes and he deceives the nations. So he's kept from doing that previously, but now he joins the nations together in a united rebellion. Against, the, against God and against His people. So they come together 
And we saw that earlier, right? We know the parallel in Ezekiel 38 39. And we know that Revelation 19 is the same thing going on, but from a different perspective because that's looking at the vanquishing of, of the beast and the false prophet. Now in chapter 20, it's looking at Satan and how he's dealt with. Because he's been behind all this stuff. And he is, he is overwhelmed by Christ and His army. There's judgment brought here. It's fire on Him. And He's thrown into the lake of fire along with the beast and the false prophet. Now, important to note, because some people who think it's chronological say, well, it says that they were. It's where the beast and the false prophet were. So that had happened earlier. Then there was a thousand years. Then this happened. Well, the word were is not there. Uh, It's not in the Bible. It's just added to try to bring an understanding. Uh, It actually says, literally, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet. Period. Where the beast and the false prophet. So it's not not a chronology. It's co-location. In other words, it's another version of another perspective of this final judgment. Where before we're focusing on the beast and the false prophet. Now, we're we're watching Satan get his do. And he's thrown along with them in this lake of fire. This, this place of final judgment. They will soon, the devil and his minions will soon meet their final doom. And that's so important to understand as well. This is meant as encouragement to people. Because it can seem at times, right, that, that the devil has the upper hand. It can seem at times like, what's going on? Why is this evil going on in this world? This opposition to the Gospel. Sometimes it seems like it's winning the day. There are, there are times when, when it just feels like, at times, I don't know if you guys ever struggle with doubts just by virtue of the sheer number of people that don't believe. What's going on? Why? And you can feel like the devil's the one winning. There's just evil. People hate this truth, the Gospel truth. We're just trying to love them and share truth with them and they, and they get upset. You know What's going on? And, and you can feel like a, just a, a remnant that's limping along. A losing cause as we watch the world around, as we say, go to hell in a handbasket. It can be hard. It can be hard for us here in New England. I, uh, I think we want to be aware of what it's like for others. Not just in the, the openly persecuted world, but actually in, in a lot of the previously evangelized world. In Sweden right now. Do you know that in Sweden there's only about 3% of the population who would demonstrate some sort of sincere profession and regular church attendance? Only 3%. And, and the vast majority are at best nominally Christian and they're militant in their secular humanism and agnosticism. They actually, really, there's a, the prevalent view there is that biblical Christianity is just so ignorant and backwards. It's shocking. You would believe that? I mean, we see that a little bit. There, it's like, you know, it, it, it is just so strongly held. Only 3% of the population believe that the Bible is God's Word. Only 3%. Now, in the United States is about 40%. New England, I think, is roughly about 25%. So, so even people that aren't believers still believe that it's God's Word. 25% here in New England. In Sweden, 3%. It's a difficult place. There are laws in that country actually that make it difficult to be a Christian. First, if you're a Christian doctor or, or nurse, you cannot refuse to perform an abortion. Homeschooling, if you prefer homeschooling, there's lots of ways to school our kids, but if you prefer homeschooling, you can't, basically. It's essentially outlawed. Speech, any sort of speech representing a negative view of unbiblical sexual ethics can be understood as hate speech and you can go to jail for it. Uh, You cannot use any form of corporal punishment. Now, 
as believers. We believe the Bible has that as part of the option of faithful parenting. It's to be done carefully in a measured way, and I'd love to talk to you about that. But it's a freedom we have. There, you cannot forget it. If you believe the Bible t- teaches you to do this, you cannot do it. Period. So those are just some of the ways it's dif- difficult to be a Christian there. So imagine being a believer in Sweden. Boy, I bet they feel at times, what's going on? Seems like Satan's winning here. Revelation 20 is meant to be an encouragement, a powerful encouragement for them because someday soon, real soon, the father of lies will tell his last lie. The deceiver of men's hearts will have his last deception. The accuser of the brethren will have his mouth shut forever. He'll be finally and forever silenced, never again to cause any trouble. And he will be subject to eternal judgment. He will get his due from the almighty, holy, everlasting, just, and worthy God. And it will be a glorious day. This is meant to be an encouragement. If the band could come up as we close. So brother or sister, believer, hang in there. Hang in there. It will all be worth it. After this short life of walking with Him and being part of His people and accomplishing His mission together, you will reign in heaven with all the saints. You'll be there in His presence in in glory, waiting the completion of His work and the final judgment of Satan. It will be glorious as you're there with Him. Do not fear. You have a superpower. You cannot be killed. You live forever. To live life boldly. And every way that you have served Him will be rewarded. Every moment of faith and obedience will be rewarded. Every act of love, every word of truth, every effort at evangelism, every act of kindness to your brothers and sisters and others, every refusal to give in to temptation or fear, each and every one of them will be rewarded. And I believe that you will wish that you had a thousand more to do over again because of the rich reward you'll experience. Be encouraged. The saints in heaven are victorious and Satan will be vanquished. So let me encourage you now as I close to consider maybe one way that you've allowed yourself to be discouraged from trusting Jesus and giving Him your all. Some way. Maybe it's a temptation that you've chosen not to resist. Just too hard. Too overwhelming to think of resisting it. Maybe it's an unnamed fear that has ruled you. Maybe being afraid to reach out or just afraid to get out of bed in the morning. What is that one thing that you want to bring to the Lord? And in light of this this truth, just say, Lord, help me. May Your Word and the light of Your Word shine in this dark area and change my life. Let's take a minute to do that and then we'll have some music, and then we'll transition to worship the Lord through communion.